Our scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18. You probably have noticed that societies which pride themselves on being broad-minded, open-minded, permissive, tend to be very hard on those who don't share their same view of permissiveness. Several years ago, a Christian went on to the Oprah show, the Oprah Winfrey show, and she, uh, she, Oprah asked her, do you believe that Christianity is the truth? She replied, well, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So, yeah, I believe that he's the truth. And then Oprah said, well, I guess that's okay so long as you don't believe that your truth is superior to my truth. It's a very familiar statement that we hear today. But the suggestion was, if you come on to my show and, and you claim an ultimate truth that competes with my ultimate truth, then you're not really welcome here. And it's, it's a bit of an absurdity. Lecrae has a song called Truth where he says, if what is true for you is true for you and what is true for me is true for me, what happens if my truth says that your truth is a lie? Is it still true? I mean, every claim to truth is, is an ultimate claim about how things are. What is reality? What's, what's authoritative? Jesus says that he's real and authoritative. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. I know your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immor immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on you any other burden except hold on Hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He cites Psalm 2 here. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The sermon title, you see it on the bottom of your bulletin there, it's entitled, The Necessity 
the necessity of a holy life. And I'd be the first to admit to you as a pastor, this is not the favorite topic of mine to preach on, the necessity of the holy life. One of the reasons is because of the, the danger is that the focus becomes you. You become fixated on, on you, how you are doing. Are you living sufficiently holy? Um, you know, the essence of pride is being fixated on you, according to C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. And pride tends to manifest itself either in a superiority complex when when we look at ourselves and we see how much better we're doing than, than everybody else, or an inferiority complex, that can be pride. When you see, uh, when you think how much better everybody else is doing beside you. And no, I, I don't want us to focus there. We get our identity as Christians from Jesus. Our righteousness is from Jesus. We are loved because of Jesus' cross and his resurrection and his grace. I don't want anything that I ever say as a pastor to contradict or to diminish those beautiful truths. But the fact is, there are a whole lot of passages in the Bible that sound like the one I just read to you. There's a whole lot that says, that speaks of the absolute necessity of of the Christian to live a holy life. That say things like, I will repay each one of you according to your deeds. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. John 5, 28. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. 1 Peter 1.17 Since you call upon a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we have done in the body, either good or evil. And then, like I said already, I will repay each one of you according to your deeds. And I just wonder, are are many Christians unaccustomed to hearing their Jesus say that? It probably depends on your church background. I'm sure there are plenty of churches where every Sunday the sermon is the necessity of the holy life Sunday. Uh, I listen to a lot of sermons each week. I probably listen to about five sermons on average a week. And I listen to them. They're mostly from our tribe. I enjoy Presbyterian sermons and Anglican sermons, Reformed Baptist sermons, all of these guys that I listen to are phenomenal preachers, and yet I don't hear this message very often from them. I wonder if you do. It's absolutely necessary. You know, my perception of all saints and and my preaching and what we're doing here in terms of teaching is that we don't emphasize this all that much. I think that what we largely do is emphasize the type of things that you hear in the, the hymn that we're going to sing after the sermon today. If you want to look at it, it's, it's one of my favorites. I learned it through 
Fernando Ortega's version of it. I think Matt Redman also has a version of, of it. William Reese's, who's a Welsh poet. Here is love, vast as the oceans, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. I think that's the type of thing, isn't it, that we emphasize here? On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. It's beautiful. That's the type of song that, that you and I sing when we're driving into work on Monday morning. It's the type of thing that we sing in the, in the shower when we're, when we're there. But it is absolutely necessary for us to hear this accompanying message. I will repay each one of you according to your deeds. Why is it that we, are, as Christians, are obligated to live a holy, a righteous, a pure, a sexually pure life? Why do we have this obligation? The first answer to that question is this. Because there, because there is a God. If there is a God who created all of this, I mean, wasn't yesterday spectacular? I went in the backyard, and I, I put a beach towel out in the grass, and I just laid there for 90 minutes, soaking it all in. If there is a God who created all of this, who governs all of this, then surely that God has the right to tell us, his creatures, how we ought to live. Now, if there is no God, if that premise is mistaken, then you ought to just go ahead and determine it for yourself. Determine your sexual ethics for yourself. Whatever makes you the most happy or whatever that broader society, the majority in the society says is, is, is sexually ethical and right, go with that. But if there is a God and if Jesus is God, so last week in Sunday school, we were with the students, we were going through some the common objections that they hear from their peers about Christianity and about the Bible. And one of the students raised their hand and said, yeah, my friends have told me before that religion and Christianity is just a crutch. It's a crutch for mentally, emotionally weak people who can't handle the, the, the harsh realities of life. And my co-teacher, Dale Strawn, he raised his hand and he pointed out that objection already assumes that God doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, then probably all that we're doing on Sunday morning is a psychological crutch for mentally and emotionally weak people. But if God does exist, then it's the most reasonable thing in the world to listen to what he has to say to his creatures and to submit to his Authority. In fact, it would be one of the dumbest things in the world not to. You know, I'm working off the assumption, as most preachers do on Sunday mornings, 
that God exists. I'm not going to prove that to you. But when he commands, therefore he has the authority, we ought to, we ought to obey. And when he gives us new information, we ought to believe. And when he promises us, when he makes audacious promises, we ought to step out and, and trust and act as though they will really come to pass. Because if there is a God, his words carry authority. Secondly, why is it necessary for us to live a holy and sexually pure life? Because that's the type of life that will produce flourishing for human beings. That's the kind of life that will be good for communities and society in in general. When I go through the Gospels, I read of a Jesus in the pages of Scripture somebody who's really loving and really wise. And when he tells me, when he tells us that sex is a union between a man and a woman who are wholly, entirely committed to each other, when that Jesus says those words, that that's what sex is for, that, that I believe belong entirely to you, exclusively with the entirety of my being, to you, that I am united to you socially, financially, economically, legally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, that that's what he created sex to be, I find a Jesus who is believable when he says that. Sex is the capstone of the union of marriage. You'd think that that simple statement, sex is the capstone of the union of marriage, would not be all too crazy revolutionary, but it actually was in the first century. In the first century, it too was kind of a day of sexual hedonism where anything goes. Men with prostitutes, men with slaves, men with men, men with boys, all of that was allowable and customary in the Greco-Roman culture that they were living in. Verse 20 And apparently some of it had crept into the church of Thyatira. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So apparently there was some woman who Jesus labels Jezebel. Jezebel in the Old Testament she and her husband, King Ahab, were kind of the gold standard for wickedness. Jezebel was the one who led the people of Israel to follow after the Baals, to worship Canaanite fertility gods, and she put to death a number of the faithful people who followed the Lord, who followed Yahweh. Apparently, there's a woman in the church who is, is leading these Christians likewise astray. The sin of the church of Thyatira, did you notice it, is not that they're all doing this. Rather, it's the sin of tolerance. It says you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. In, in other words, you may not be following her, but you're giving her a platform, and you are, you're failing to confront and discipline her, which sounds like uh, a sin that's pretty common still in the church today, doesn't it? 
when I read through this passage, I stood, I, I, I remember it was probably Wednesday, I went into the kitchen, I was talking to Aaron, I said, I don't want to preach this passage this week. This is, this is a, this is not a pleasant passage. Jesus in this passage of all of the seven letters, seems to me extremely angry. Why would Jesus be so angry here about sexual, about their sexual behavior? And the only answer I could come up with is it's because this is the sin which utterly rips apart people's lives. Like sexual sins seem to have a unique ability to to rip us up. And you and I have, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We've seen this thousands and tens and tens of thousands of, of times, how it devastates. We were watching the Super Bowl last week, enjoying the commercials. Uh, for my money, the best of the Super Bowl commercials was the avocados from Mexico. Did you see? The polar bear He's like, beach, beach, beach for the, for the draft because he wanted to be drafted by Mexico. But instead, they drafted the avocado. Um, the worst of the Super Bowl commercials for me was Fifty Shades of Grey, the trailer. I don't get angry about that so much as I, I feel a great deal of sadness for people who are trapped in erotica. And if the statistics are to be believed... There are a large number of Christian women who are, who are dabbling in erotica. The statistics are to be believed. There's a large number of Christian men and women who are trapped in pornography. That's the type of stuff that utterly rules, ruins people's lives. We've all seen it. It's verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, and she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. The worst part about being a pastor is uh, dealing with sheep who won't repent of their ways. The best part of being a pastor is we, I've seen probably over the last three years more people whose lives were a sexually broken mess have their lives renewed, reclaimed by Jesus Christ. Like that has been happening in our church. Anytime that happens, the very first step for, of repentance for a person who's there is, is, to, is, to, is to exit the darkness, to exit the culture of secrecy and, and hiddenness and lies and to walk out of the darkness and into the light. And that's what Jesus has been doing in our church to a certain extent over the last few years. Now, I wouldn't, I don't want to even give off the impression that it's an easy road to take. Um, but he's put back marriages back together. He's put back singleness back together. Um, I do want to say something about singleness for all you singles here I think it's very difficult to be a single person in Christian churches today, probably because almost everything at church seems to center around families with children. Have you noticed that? Like we, we run the risk of idolizing the nuclear family in, in the church 
we run the risk of idolizing marriage. Somebody once said this. They said that uh, a spouse in a minivan full of kids on the way to Disneyland is a great gift of God and a terrible substitute for God. If everything in Christian churches revolves around being married with children, we shouldn't be surprised when singleness sounds like a death sentence to some of us. You're dealing with your singleness. You're dealing with such a a sex-saturated culture. Winston Smith is a Christian counselor, author, guy that I respect. He works with Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF, up in Philadelphia. And he put out a video this past week where he asked the question, what do you say to someone who is struggling with being single? What do you say to somebody struggling with, who's, who's afraid of being single? He said, well, first off, the first thing I say to them is, I, it's understandable that you feel that way because God didn't create us to be alone. You're feeling part of that. Isolation is painful. Being dis- disconnected from meaningful relationships is painful. And nobody, nobody really wants to live that way. But what I would encourage a single person to remember is that marriage is not, is not always the solution to that kind of isolation. I encourage them to remember that you can marry the wrong kind of person and be every bit as lonely and worse and suffer a whole lot more than being lonely. So when I talk to somebody who's fearful about their singleness, I start, I want to steer them toward the question, how can they be building meaningful, deep relationships with the folk around them, especially relationships in the church with Christian friends, relationships that center on the gospel, relationships that express the love of, of Jesus. Because those are the relationships they're going to need for the rest of their lives, whether they're, they're single or married. And that's where I, I push them to, which I thought was very wise words. Verse 22, 23 rather. Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Did you see that? Jesus searches hearts and minds. He's the Lord who, who knows our motives. He knows whether our faith and love are real or whether they are a show. He knows what we're really thinking and the parts of our lives that we, we hide so successfully from others because he's the searcher of hearts and minds. We cannot, dare not, hide it from him. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I thought, what am I going to do on the day of judgment? When Brad Cheney stands before the Lord Jesus Christ on that last day, what am I going to plea? Am I going to plea the fact that I went three weeks ago to the gospel rescue mission and fed homeless people? You know, of course not. Am I going to plea that, that I've resisted all temptations to lust and ungodly? No. I, I, what are you going to plead? I mean, my only plea is going to be Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. You have seen it all already. You've seen all the filth. 
You've seen all the duplicity. You've seen it all. Lord, have mercy. My plea will be Jesus Christ. My plea will be Jesus' cross. My plea will be Jesus' grace, his resurrection, his righteousness given as a free gift. But I also trust him that there will be works that he'll favorably repay. I mean, isn't that what God actually promised to do? We sang about the Holy Spirit earlier in our service. Didn't he promise to give us the Holy Spirit who would produce good fruit in our lives? Didn't he raise Jesus from the grave and give us that same spirit? Because he said, my sons and daughters, through this spirit, will become progressively more holy, more just, more pure, more righteous. I will do that. And so, no, I'm not going to plea that. I'm not going to say, Lord, see what I've done. But I, I fully expect there will be things that I have done that he's done through me. He's done through you, which he will reward. It's the next one, verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 26. So he quotes here famous psalm, psalm number 2, which is a royal psalm that relates to the great king who would one day come, the Messiah. And the Messiah will rule over the, the nations, and he will rule over the kings and the authorities of the earth. And it says that he will, in verse 9 of Psalm 2, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. But the strange part about this verse, who is Jesus applying this to? He's not applying it to himself, but he's applying it to us. Part of the promised reward is that we will reign with Christ one day in the end. Matthew 28, what is it? Matthew 28, 25, 21. Some will be put in charge over many things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we will, we will even stand in judgment over angels. It's hard to know what all of these things specifically refer to. But in some sense, we will participate in the judgment of Christ. We'll rule with him in the next world. It's, it's spoken of on several occasions, even if we can't explain it clearly. I, I don't know if that feels like much of a reward to you. It, it sounds almost uncomfortably militaristic, doesn't it? But I have to believe if Jesus holds it out as, as something to be aspired to, then it's going to be something that's truly, truly good. Uh, Aaron and I have a new favorite PBS show. We found it last couple weeks, Masterpiece Mysteries. Anybody gotten into Grantchester? Yeah, it's great. I love it. The protagonist, the detective, happens to be a priest in the Church of England, and so I, I fancy myself, I, I can relate to him. Wouldn't it be great solving murder mysteries in Boise? I would love that. <laughs> well, last week in the story, they have, he has a pastoral intern, or whatever they call it in the Anglican church. Some 
newly graduated seminary student who's coming into the parish, who's training for ministry under the priest. And like most seminary students, when he goes to preach, he preaches something that is way too academic in nature. If you saw the episode, he stands up in the pulpit and he begins to lecture on the deontological ethics of Immanuel Kant. Everybody in the church is falling asleep. I mean, they're passed out. Or they're snickering under their breath because they can't believe they're hearing a sermon on Kant. Do you remember from your intro philosophy courses, Kant's ethic? What did Kant teach? Kant taught that it is wrong for you to do good for the sake of a reward. That you're to do good for duty's sake without any thought of a future recompense. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Over and again in the Bible, Scripture, Jesus, God motivates our obedience with promised reward. And maybe Psalm 2 doesn't sound like something that gets you too excited this morning, but the, the second part of the promised reward should. What does he say? Verse 20, verse 28. To him who overcomes and does my will, I will give you the morning star. What's the morning star? Like when... Yes, I thought I heard somebody say it. The morning star is Jesus, because later in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the bright morning star. The morning star is also the planet Venus. So when Hannah and I were getting up this morning to drive into the church for the first service, I said, Hannah, look to the northwest. Do you see anything? She said, no, can't see anything. No, look. We kept driving through the neighborhood as the houses are obscuring our view. Look to the northwest. Do you see anything now? There she is. The morning star. All of the other stars of the night have disappeared. And there's only one remaining, the planet Venus. What does the morning star tell you? The morning star tells you that the very next event that is going to take place in the world is what? Is the rising of the sun. And Jesus says, ah, it's coming, it's soon, it's here. To him who overcomes, to him who does my will to the, to the end, to, to him who perseveres, to the one who denies themselves, takes up their cross, and follows me. You could, like, you use all kinds of different language. To, to him who turns from, from their wickedness and returns back to me, I will give you me. He never says it'll be easy. It's not like he denies that our early childhood experiences profoundly, profoundly shape us, profoundly affect the way that we behave. It's not like he denies that the biological wiring that we've got inside of us is not miswired. It's not like it's going to be easy for for you, or you, or you. But he respects you enough to say that you have an obligation to overcome. I think that we live in a culture of, for lack of a better word, uh, psychological determinism, which basically tells us that whatever was our early childhood experience 
that that must then produce this kind of person. So if, if Judy's mom was mean, that's why Judy today doesn't like other women. Well, no, the same mean mother could just have as likely produced a Judy that either, for example, A, craves the approval of other women, B, becomes addicted to bad men, or C, dedicates her life to making sure women have the affection that she never knew. Like one childhood experience could have lots of different outcomes. Your past doesn't determine exactly what you have to be. Jesus says you are not helpless. You are not hopeless. You have an obligation if you call yourself a Christian. And that is, verse 25, to hold on to the teaching I have given you. And if you do, the promises that you get me, you'll get the morning star. He calls it, he tells us that the sun is about to rise, the day is about to come, and on that day, we get Jesus. And Jesus Christ will be enough. Amen.